The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Well, good morning. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 of Revelation chapter 2. In these verses we read the following. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. As uh, we've been talking about in recent weeks, we are we're living in challenging times. We're living in difficult days. We're living in, in, in days where uh, the culture around us is, is becoming more and more hostile. We find ourselves in the United States in the midst of an election year, which has got folks' emotions up and sort of whipped up into a frenzy. There's a, a, a polarization that, that seems to be occurring around us and people's thoughts and feelings and opinions on a variety of topics. It's very, very difficult uh, to sort of uh, land in the middle on anything. You're sort of pushed into a corner to either be for or against this person or that person, this thing or that. And the rhetoric that surrounds the things that are part of our sort of cultural dialogue in the morning is so hostile and continues to get more and more hostile. These are days that are challenging for the church. They're days that are challenging for believers to know how to navigate. And we've been talking about this and, and reflecting on this and asking the question, what does God's word have to say to us about this? And one of my goals is to sort of push back against what's I, what I've been seeing really and hearing out in the body of Christ in, in recent weeks and months, just sort of this, this idea that in moments like these, the church has to be gripped with fear and respond out of fear. We don't have to respond to the world around us out of fear. We don't have to be gripped by fear. We serve a sovereign God who's in control of the universe, who's in control of all things. The church has existed forever since, the, since, since Christ came and died and rose again. The Christian church has been here. And Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the church has has moved forward through all sorts of seasons of rest and unrest, seasons of peace and seasons of, of conflict. Christ's church prevails because Christ is the Lord of the church and Christ protects his church and Christ cares for his church through every single season. We don't have to be people who in moments of cultural upheaval have to be gripped by fear. Instead, we need to see these things as a, as an, as a season of opportunity. These moments like we find ourselves in right now are wonderful opportunities for the church to show why the church is different from the world. They're wonderful opportunities for the church to shine like a light in the midst of darkness. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were looking at God's word and, and talking about the issue of peace. When the world is in turmoil, it's a wonderful opportunity for the church of the living God to be an example and to be a model and to be a light of peace in the world, to be people who are at peace with God and at peace within ourselves and at peace with other people. And when we do that, when the world around us is in upheaval, we stand out as different and we testify to Christ. 
It's a wonderful opportunity. When we come to Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 7 this morning, we see that, that moments like this are also an opportunity to be a testimony for Christ in another way. In the way that we love people. In the way that we display love in the, mix, in the midst of a, of a culture that is severely lacking in love. It's important for us as we look at these next two chapters of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, and we look at these letters that are addressed to particular churches in John's day to understand that Christ cares deeply about his church. The church belongs to Christ, and he cares deeply about it. He established the church on the foundation of the gospel. He's promised to protect his church and to care for his church. One of the analogies in the New Testament for the church is that the church is the bride of Christ. He loves his bride, and he cares for his bride deeply. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we come to these letters in Revelation 2 and 3 that Christ has something to say to his church, that he has something to say to his bride, because he cares deeply about his bride, the church, and how she navigates in the midst of a world that is in upheaval. He cares deeply about what goes on in his church. He cares deeply about how his church behaves in the world. And so he speaks to it. In some ways, in, in some accommodating terms, he has some good things to say about some of the churches that we'll see. And he also has some, some things that, he, that are hard, that are no doubt hard for them to hear. And in some ways, maybe hard for us to hear. We need to understand that Christ doesn't hold back his judgment from his church. When things are out of whack in the church, Christ speaks to it, and he speaks directly, and he demands that his people listen. And if you catch anything from these letters, you need to catch that because they always begin with an address to the church and a description of the one who is speaking, some description of Christ himself, largely pulled from the descriptions of him in chapter 1. He will offer in most cases, but not in all, some words of commendation, some affirmation of some things that are going on. But then he's going to get to the point of some things that are out of whack, some things that are a real problem. And he's going to challenge these churches to get these things right, and he's going to do it at the end of a threat. Christ cares deeply about his church. He cares deeply about how his church navigates in the world. And when his church navigates wrongly in the world, he will come to it and he'll speak and he'll call them to respond and to hear and to repent and to turn. But if they don't, as we'll see even this morning, he threatens its very existence. He will not tolerate his church being a bad witness in the world around it for him. And so these words are words to the church. To the church in Ephesus, for sure. To the church at Grace on the Ashley, just the same. And I remind you as we walk through this that really a church at its very heart in essence is nothing more than a, a gathering of people. It's a body of believers. And so what the church really is in the world is a reflection of what the believers who make up that church are. So when there's something lacking in the church, that means that very thing is quite often lacking in the people who make up the church. And so lest we try to evade these warnings this morning and in the weeks to come to the church by saying, well, that's a warning to the church, it's really not me. We have to remember at every point that we are the church. I am the church and you are the church. And if there's a problem in the church, there's a quite, quite a good chance that maybe that problem res resides in my own heart and in your own heart. He's going to call here for the church here in Ephesus and these other churches to follow to repent corporately as a group, to repent and turn from some endemic sins that have taken root in the church. But for a church corporately to repent, that means the people who make up a part of the church have to individually be, have a repentant heart and a willingness to turn. And so I challenge you as we walk through this this morning and in the weeks ahead to be thinking in terms of, of us as corporately as a church, how do these words apply not just in John's day to the churches to whom they're addressed, but how do these words apply to us? Are there some of these commendations that, that if Christ were to, to show up in our very midst and were to, uh, to, to walk amongst this church and, and, and observe what we do and hear what we say, would, would, would he have some of these same commendations to give to us? If so, we, we rejoice in that and we'll celebrate that. 
But we also need to ask the question, if Christ were to show up today and evaluate this church and evaluate those of us who make it up, would some of these rebukes land at our feet? And would he demand of us something different than what we're doing? And so he speaks here to the church. In our text this morning, he speaks to the first church, the church at Ephesus. I don't know how much you know of Ephesus, but Ephesus is a very important city in that region of the world. In John's day, it was, it was really of the churches that Jesus addresses here in these chapters, Ephesus was the most significant of them. It was the most significant of them. It was a major political, a major economic, it was a, a major uh, uh, religious sort of central location in Asia Minor at the time. The population of the city was somewhere between about 250,000 to half a million people that resided in Ephesus and in that area. And if you recall from last week in the introduction, John is writing this letter from the island of Patmos just offshore of Ephesus. And so what most likely happened was John penned the letter and a messenger carried it to shore at Ephesus at the seaport there. And the letter was delivered then to Ephesus, the first church that is encountered there upon coming to shore and then sort of the letter makes its way around uh, the circle to the other churches as well. Uh, you could go to modern day Turkey right now and you can visit uh, ancient Ephesus and you can see the ruins that are, that are there. Uh, major excavation has been going on for years uh, in Ephesus and much of ancient Ephesus has been unearthed and you can see uh, an awful lot of things. I've got some pictures for you this morning. I'll show you as we sort of move along. Uh, but Ephesus was an incredibly important church. It was an incredibly important city. There were four major Roman trade routes that all sort of crisscrossed at Ephesus. So all of the major trade that was taking part, uh, that was taking place in the Roman world was crossing paths at Ephesus. So it was a major economic center where a lot of commerce was, was taking place. You'll see in the picture in front of you right now, uh, a major library was there in Ephesus that held thousands and thousands of scrolls. It was the largest library of its kind in, in, the, uh, in the region at the time. And it was a well-known location. You can see the facade of that. There were, you can see some of the old roads like you see here in Ephesus. This is the Arcadian Way. It was a major road that went from the seaport right into the middle of town. And, and so you can imagine the ships coming into Ephesus and offloading all of their cargo and all of those uh, seafarers carrying their, their goods into the city and into the marketplace. And down this road where it was lined in its day with all these beautiful columns and shops and merchants and bankers and all sorts of things along the side. The road itself was, was laid with, with pure marble and, and it was one of the three roads, only three roads in the, in the Roman world at the time that were lighted at night. Can you imagine? Lighted by, by oil lamps on tops of columns at night. A very important economic center, a very important metropolitan area. You saw a picture a moment ago of, of a massive theater that they had built there in Ephesus that could hold up to like 25,000 people in this place. They would hold sporting events and political events and so forth there in that Colosseum that you can see the unearthed ruins of there. It was a very, it was a very modern city for their day. They had developed all sorts of modern architecture, even modern plumbing, if you can imagine that. You can see some pictures of some uh, plumbing pipe from ancient Ephesus. Did you know that they had plumbing? Do you know what that is? I think you can probably let your imagination go, right? They had a, a modern, a modern you know, public restroom that you could uh, go and make use of. Uh, I, I don't know exactly how that worked or, 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 or uh, what would happen uh, in, in that location other than the obvious, but... Uh, but that was a modern, that was a modern convenience at the time. There was, these things were not common, you know. It wasn't like today where when you think of simple things like that in your life, that it was an easy thing. It wasn't. Uh, they had developed a whole system underneath of, of flowing water and so forth. It was a very, very modern, modern city. Um, you can see even there some of the, the plumbing pipes in the ground there that they would use to, to, to move water and to move waste and things like that. So it's a very, very economically wealthy city, a very modern city. It was a major, major city at the time, well-known all around. And religiously, uh, you would find Ephesus to be the center of sort of pagan worship at the time as well. What you see in the picture there is an artist's rendering of the most notable feature of the city. It was a, a, a massive temple 
uh, to the pagan god Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. It was a remarkable, remarkable uh, building and facility. Uh, Somewhere around 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, 60 feet tall. It was a massive, massive structure. Over 127 uh, pure marble pillars in the building. Uh, 36 of them overlaid with gold and ornate jewelry. It was just a, a, a decadent, gorgeous, remarkable place, unlike anything else. And it stood up high in the city, and it was really uh, a central feature of the religious sort of nature of, of the city. And, and, and worship at this temple would have gone on all the time. Thousands of priestesses would have populated the temple as a part of the worship, along with priests and all sorts of other folks. And if you had been able to go to the, to the worship, you would have seen all sorts of ecstatic worship and crazy things that would, people would do to worship this pagan god, which is nothing other than a demon referred to as Artemis, or sometimes you'll hear this uh, particular one called Diana. Uh, a massive building, and there was an entire industry that surrounded this temple that populated the city. You may recall in Acts chapter 19 when Paul is at Ephesus and he's preaching the gospel. Uh, you'll remember that something that happened. Paul, God gave Paul favor and the gospel went out into Ephesus with power and people were converted to Christ and saved out of this, out of this rank paganism and that caused a problem. You can see in verses 18 through 20 uh, of, of this chapter what happened. Uh, talking about a man by the name of Demetrius, a silversmith who, who had gathered up a mob sort of to drag Paul into that theater you saw. And we're told there that, uh, that, that these he gathered in, in verses 25 through 27. If you go a couple of verses down in your Bible, it says that Demetrius gathered these people together with workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. That is, they made idols and shrines to Artemis. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many of people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Demetrius was an angry man. Paul's evangelism ministry was undercutting his business venture, right? People were coming to Christ, and they were no longer buying shrines and buying idols and buying all the wares of these, of these silversmiths and other artisans who had this industry around the temple, and they were livid. They wanted to run this man out of town as quickly as possible. And so Ephesus, economically, was a massive city, an important city. Religiously, it was the center of pagan worship. And it was the center of all sort of pagan practices and magic arts and so forth that surrounded that. And it's into that that we find a little church. There was a little church there in the middle of this particular city, the church at Ephesus. Another thing I forgot to mention to you about Ephesus, not only was there this, this temple to Artemis, but there, they had also been sort of on the leading edge of, of emperor worship, and they had built several temples dedicated to the emperors where people would come and worship the emperor. And that was the main issue, if you recall from last week, that John was dealing with under Domitian, who was requiring everybody to bow and worship him, and it's why John was arrested and, and exiled but that was central to Ephesus as well. But in the midst of all that, God had planted a beautiful little church. If you go back to Acts chapter 18 and 19, you can read about the planting of this church. It started really with a, a couple of faithful women, Aquila and Priscilla, who gathered up some people in their home and began to plant a little church there on the gospel of Jesus in the middle of Ephesus. And they were later joined by the great preacher Apollos, who came to Ephesus for a while, and he preached and Later, on Paul's third missionary journey, he comes to Ephesus, and he plants there 
uh, for about two and a half to three years, and he spends time building up this church in Ephesus and building up the believers and evangelizing the city and teaching the body of Christ God's word and God's truth. And the Lord blessed Paul's ministry. He blessed it tremendously. In the middle of all this paganism, this little church takes root and it begins to blossom and it begins to grow. And God uses some dramatic means to make this happen. You see in verses 18 through 20 of of Acts 19 what was happening. Many of those who were new believers, now believers, people who had come to Christ out of this paganism and were confessing and divulging their their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts they brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and they found it came to what 50,000 pieces of silver this is a tremendous amount of money this is a lot of people who've come to Christ and a lot of people as a part of their repentance have brought all the paraphernalia of their pagan worship and brought it and piled it up and lit fire to it. Large, large numbers of people were coming to Christ under Paul's ministry. He stayed there for a couple of years and he moved on and he, the, the church was later after Paul leaves uh, pastored by his protege Timothy for a while and then later on John the Apostle comes and he becomes the leader of the church and it's probably at Ephesus when he's leading that John is arrested and exiled to Patmos and writes Revelation but this little church has been there by the time this letter is written in Revelation chapter 2 for about 35 to 40 years the church has been planted and thriving now in Ephesus and it's to this very church that Christ speaks And he says to them, in verse 1, this greeting, To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works. I know your works. Now you'll notice he begins this first part of it by saying, To the angel at the church at Ephesus write, So we want to ask the question immediately, who is this angel that he's talking about to whom John is to write and deliver this letter? There's all all sorts of debate about this in the theological world out there. Uh, Everything from uh, folks arguing that this is some sort of a guardian angel assigned to the church or some sort of spiritual, angelic, mystic authority that that the Lord has placed over this particular church. Um, uh, However, I don't think that that really makes sense in the context based on what uh, what is said to this church and what is said to the messengers along the way in these, in these letters. The word that's translated angel here is the word in Greek, angelos. It, it means at its very base, just messenger. Sometimes in the Bible it's used of heavenly messengers. Sometimes it's used of human messengers that are just called a messenger or an angel in that regard. And so my best understanding of this is that the, what's being referred to here is the messenger of the church, is the local pastor, the local head elder, or whoever it is that is leading the local assembly of the church is referred to as the messenger or the angel of that church. It's, it's to whom John is, to, is writing, and it's to whom this letter is to be delivered to that leader so that that leader then can convey the message to the church at large, the angel of the church the one who's responsible for the care of this church and this flock. And so it's written by whom? It's written by the one here, he says, to him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you have your Bible and you just kind of glance across the page back over to chapter 1, verse 16, you see that exact description. In his right hand he held the seven stars. And and, and you go on down and you read about uh, the, the lampstands as well. It's a, a perfect description from chapter 1 given to Christ in chapter 2. And it's an interesting picture of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus here is pictured as holding seven stars and walking among the lampstands. Well, the imagery we don't have to try to figure out because in chapter 1 he tells us what these things symbolize, right? In chapter 1, at the very end, he tells us that uh, the, golden, the seven golden lampstands uh, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven, la- excuse me, the, the seven golden, uh, let me just read the verse so I'm not bungling it up like I'm doing right now. As for the mystery of the seven stars, as you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the churches. So it's the leaders of these churches who are the seven stars pictured as being held in Christ's hands, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
So here Christ is pictured as holding in his hands these, these messengers of the churches. They are in his hands. They are in his care. They are under his control. He holds them. And he walks among the lampstands. The lampstands are the churches. So the picture is a picture of Christ walking amongst the church. He's not standing and observing from a distance, but he's walking among the church. He's, he's, it's the picture of, of Christ walking through the church and looking at it from every angle and evaluating what's happening and what's going on and what's being done and doing a, a close, if you will, inspection of the church. He, he's aware of every thought. He's aware of every motive. He's evaluating every activity that's going on. And there's nothing going on in the life of the church at Ephesus here that the Lord doesn't see. He's walking among the church and he's looking and he's paying close attention to everything. And he says, because of that, I know your works. He's not guessing what they're doing. He's not estimating what they're doing. He knows what they're doing because he's walking among them and he's looking. It's both a beautiful picture of Christ's intimacy with his church, but it's also a bit of a challenging and frightening picture of Christ who is walking amongst his church. He's paying attention. He's not aloof and distanced from the local body of Christ. Christ knows what's going on. He's watching, he's listening, he's paying attention, and he knows the works of the church. We can deceive ourselves, but he can never be deceived. He knows the truth, and he knows things as they are, the good and the bad. And both exist here at this particular church in Ephesus. He begins by saying some words of commendation to them. There are some things that this church is doing really well. And Christ commends them for these things. Look at them in verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> he speaks of, he says, I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. He found them to be false. I know your enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you haven't grown weary there are some things that this church is doing really well he says then listen i know your toil the word for toil here is a word that that means working to the point of exhaustion he knows that this is a busy and an active church they're not a lazy church they're not a church that's just sitting back on its heels and doing nothing they're not a church full of consumers who just sort of show up and consume and then go about their daily lives. They are a church that is together and that is busy and that is active in the ministry that God's called them to do. They are working hard. They're not lazy. They're not neglectful. They've continued to do the work of the ministry in the pagan city in which God has planted them. They continue to evangelize. They've continued to teach. They've continued to serve. They've continued to work out the ministry of Christ in the world around them. They have somehow, in the midst of the persecution that they've been facing, they've resisted the urge to pull back and become inward. You see, that's always the, the temptation for the church when it faces persecution, right? The temptation is when the heat starts coming from the outside, the temptation is for the church to say, whoa, we don't want any part of that stuff. And so the, the church begins to then withdraw from the culture and withdraw from the folks outside and begins to become inward and begins to sort of shelter itself within the walls of the local church. To stop doing the ministry and to stop taking the gospel in order to preserve their own safety. But not this church. This church had continued to work. They had resisted that urge, and they were active, and they were busy, and they were working to the point of exhaustion. And Christ says, I see that you're working. I see you. I see you're working hard. I see you're out there getting after it in the ministry that I've called you to. That doesn't, that doesn't slide by my view. You're commended for that. But it's not just that they're working hard. It's that they're patiently enduring. He says that twice. He, he says your patient endurance. And a little further later, he says you're enduring patiently. It's the same thing, right? Because they had refused to bow a knee to Artemis in the temple, because they had refused to bow a knee to the emperor and, and, and had locked themselves on to worshiping the Lord himself and him only, they were, they were the, really the targets of tremendous persecution. They were maligned. They were lied about, they were slandered, they were boycotted, they were abused. All sorts of bad things were happening to this church by way of persecution. They were facing it, serious threats. And again, the temptation when persecuted is to sort of, just sort of lax the standards a bit. 
to sort of start accommodating the culture a bit. It's to sort of, sort of ease up and just do whatever it takes to, to cause the heat to simmer down. But not these people. Not the church at Ephesus. They, they had no part of that. They were patiently enduring the persecution that came their way. They weren't lashing out and fighting back. They weren't fighting back. They weren't running away. They hadn't given up in the face of persecution. They just kept on working and kept on dealing. And they kept on displaying the love of Christ in some ways. And they kept on doing the ministry of Christ. And they didn't quit when it got hard. They patiently endured. Whatever trouble came their way, they dealt with it. And they didn't give up. There's something to be said for a church that doesn't give up when it's hard. There's something to be said for a church that can endure persecution and just keep rolling with the gospel. That was this church. Another thing that they did that he commends them for is, is something that's very important. And it was one of the big challenges that faced many of the churches of the day. And the, the challenge was false teachers. False teachers that would come into the church and infiltrate the body and begin to teach false doctrine and lead people away from the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Ephesus was no uh, exception to that. There were false teachers. And you can imagine the kind of city Ephesus was. It drew people that were like this to that city. And this church would have drawn people who were like that who would come and try to lead the flock away from Christ, who would set themselves up as sort of super apostles, or at least apostles on the outside edge of the 12, and set themselves up as spiritual authorities and begin to teach and demand that people follow after them. But this church, this church had no patience whatsoever, no tolerance for false teachers, none whatsoever. If you remember Acts chapter 20, Paul warned this particular church a couple of decades earlier that this was going to happen. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, Paul had called the Ephesian elders to himself. He had come by ship nearby and called them out to him, and he met with them. And he said this kind of his last words to them before he moved on. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul, he knew, prophetically knew what was going to happen after he left. That there would be false teachers from the outside that would come in, and there would be false teachers that would arise from within the church. And he warned these elders, whatever you do, pay close attention to yourselves and pay close attention to the flock, particularly in this area. And it's, it's remarkable to hear that the Ephesian elders took this challenge very, very seriously. And they had endured in this area. They continued to not give false teachers a foothold in this church. They, they had no patience with them. They identified them for what they were, evil men with evil motives. And they would run them out. They, had, they didn't accept just any old person who came in with a bang. They tested them, it says. They're not going to be fooled by someone coming in with some charisma or with charm to sort of lead them astray. No, they put them to the test doctrinally. They looked at their lives and they looked at their doctrine closely. And they identified false apostles for what they were. False, liars, deceivers, evil men with evil motives. And they protected the flock from these people. We don't know for sure who these false teachers were. We know that we see down in verse 16 that the uh, Nicolaitans are, are mentioned. We don't know really anything about the Nicolaitans other than what we find here. Uh, historically, the best we can do is piece together that they were some sort of a group that had taught so, some sort of a, a doctrine that allowed for sort of a syncretism to be able to, to remain faithful to Christ but to accommodate some of the idolatry and the immorality into the body. They, under the guise of sort of spiritual liberty and spiritual freedom, they taught that people could be semi-idolatrous and semi-immoral and still be faithful to Christ. It was a, 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 some sort of a doctrine of compromise. And we're told in verse 16 that these Ephesians, they, they hated those works, the works of the Nicolaitans. And Christ says, I hate them too. And you've stood up to that. They refused to compromise. They would not allow heretical influence into the church. 
It wouldn't allow it. And they're to be commended for that, to be tremendously commended for that, for guarding the doctrinal purity of the church, for guarding the body from false doctrine and from lies and deception. But Christ has a, a problem with the church. In spite of all these things that are good, in spite of the fact that they're patiently enduring, in spite of the fact that they're busy working hard at the ministry, in spite of the fact that they have guarded the flock well from false teachers, there's a problem. And it's a major problem. A major problem. A problem that is so major that it overrides all of the things that they're doing well. And it threatens the very existence of the church. He says, I have this against you in verse 4. You never want to be at churches on the other end of that sentence, do you? I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. All these things that you've done and you do remarkably well, but you have lost sight of something that is absolutely critical to your existence. Love. The problem in this church is that their love had grown cold. Their love had grown cold. The church had settled into some sort of a, a cold orthodoxy. They knew their doctrine. They could root out error. They could identify false prophets. They stood fast for the truth, but they lacked love. They lacked love. In the midst of dealing with the persecution, in the midst of dealing with false teachers and false doctrine, in the midst of working hard, in the midst of a pagan culture, something foundational had been lost in the church. They had lost love. In their zeal for the truth, they had forgotten that the truth without love is a curse and not a blessing. Robert Mounts writes this. He says, every virtue carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. It seems probable the desire for sound teaching and the resulting forthright action taken to exclude all impostors had created a climate of suspicion in which love within the believing community could no longer exist. Truth without love. Doctrine without love. Work and busy ministry without love. And Christ says, I have this against you. Now, is he talking about love for God or is he talking about love for others? He doesn't specify in the letter, um, but it stands to reason that what lo most likely has happened is they've lost both because almost inevitably, it's been my experience and I believe the scriptures bear this out, that when people lack love for other people, you can usually dig a little deeper into their lives and you find out that their love for God has grown cold because when we're walking closely with the Lord and our love for God is hot, that usually translates into a love toward other people. But when our love for God goes cold and it dims, it's usually reflected in the way we deal with other people too. And that's likely what's happened here. Because a love for God and a love for others is intricately tied together. And what's happened here in Ephesus is the church has likely lost both of these things. In 1 John 3.16, this same John writes this later. He says this, by this we know, we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. You see, our life is energized by love for Christ because we love him because he laid down his life for us, and we know he's done for us what we could never do for ourselves, and we love him for that. And in light of the fact that we love him for that, we have a responsibility then to love and lay down our lives for others. See, the two are tied together. When we're captivated by the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross for us, we are driven to lay down our life for other people. When we understand what, what significant recipients we are of the love of God, we dare not withhold love from other people. But when we forget, we do. What often happens over time in the lives of believers, and I've seen this over and over again, I've seen it in my own life, I've observed it in the lives of others, 
is we, we come to Christ and over time, we begin to lose sight of what it was like to be lost. We forget what our condition was before we came to know Christ. We forget what a desperate state we were in and what a hopeless state we were in. We forget about God's extravagant love and sending his very own son to die in our place, to shed his blood for our sins so that we hopeless people who could never save ourselves would have hope. We forget as we grow in our knowledge and we forget as we grow in our holiness what it was like to be lost and what it was like to have the light bulb turn on in our life of the gospel, to realize that God's extravagant love has been poured out to us in Christ on the cross, not because we deserved it, not because he was obligated to, but simply because he loved us. And we begin to forget about that. And we grow in knowledge, and we grow in various areas of our life, perhaps in victory over some of our sin. And all of a sudden, spiritual pride starts to set in. And not too long after that, a cold and a loveless and a judgmental spirit begins to emerge. And that's no doubt what's happened in the church at Ephesus. The church has been going now for a few decades. And they've forgotten about love. They've forgotten to love other people, and it's obvious in the way they're living. And that is a symptom of the fact that they have lost their love for Christ. A loveless church is an oxymoron. It should never be. A loveless Christian is an oxymoron. It should never be. Never. And Christ comes to this church and he says, I have something against you. You've got all these things going for you and you're doing a lot of things well, but you've forgotten the thing that matters the most. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You're no longer a loving church. You're no longer lo reflecting the love of Christ as a body. As individuals, you are no longer reflecting the love of Christ. You've, you've allowed yourselves to settle into a cold, loveless, harsh, judgmental orthodoxy. Listen, love matters. Love is foundational to who God is. If you were to read 1 John chapter 4, John talks about this. This same John, verse 8, he says, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You can't get more direct than that, right? If you don't love, you don't know God. Because God is love. Foundational to who he is in essence, God is love. He's love. All throughout the Old Testament, the Bible tells us an awful lot of things about the nature of God. But it says over and over and over and over again that he's a God who is abounding in steadfast love. Abounding in steadfast love. Read it all throughout the Psalms. Read it throughout uh, the, the, the whole of the Old Testament, the prophets. Books of Moses in the beginning. Psalm 86, 15 is a good example. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. It is his love that motivated him to save us, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why did God send his only begotten son to the cross to die in our place for our sins that we might be saved? Is it because he was missing something? Is it because he was lonely in heaven and needed some company? Is it because there was something good in us that needed to be redeemed? No, he did that because of one reason, because he loved us. Not because we were worthy of that love, but because he loved us. It's who he is. To think of God and to not think of love is to caricature his nature. The sad reality is much of the lost world that exists around the Christian church knows nothing of the love of God. They don't realize that God is loving because they've never seen that love reflected in the Christians that they know. If the world around us does not understand fundamentally that God is love, it's because they haven't seen it in you and they haven't seen it in me. 
And it's a good place for us to stop and ask the question. When lost people encounter me, what, what of God's nature do they see reflected in my life? What of God's nature do they hear reflected in my words? What of God's nature do they see reflected in my attitudes and in my behavior? If love isn't in there somewhere, then we're off course. And Christ would say to us, just like he says to this church, I have something against you. Love is a, is a primary evidence of saving faith. John writes in 1 John 3, 16, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love our brothers. Whoever doesn't love abides in death. How do you know that someone's a believer? They love other people. That's the primary evidence for it. Jesus said it himself by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Love's the foundation of what God expects of every one of us, right? It's the foundation. When, when in Mark chapter 12, when, when scribes come to Jesus and they ask him, Jesus, boil it all down. What is, the, what is the bottom line most important thing for us to know and to do? When Jesus looks at all that there is to say about truth and the gospel and how people ought to reflect that in the world, what he comes up with is this. Here's what's most important. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is this, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other greater commandment than these. Every other act of obedience rings hollow if we neglect love. That's the message to the church at Ephesus. Every other act of obedience that we do rings hollow if it isn't seasoned by and saturated with love. It's empty. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, essentially the same thing. He says, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and I understand all knowledge, if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give away everything that I have, if I deliver my body up to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Without love, every other act of ministry is a complete and utter waste of time. You remember Peter after he denied Christ and Christ comes to him by the seashore and he's abandoned the ministry and gone back to fishing while he's wallowing in his failure what is Jesus concerned about when he talks to him? He says, Peter, I've just got one question for you. Do you love me? Do you love me? Then go feed my sheep. He asked him three, three times, do you love me? It's love that's at the bottom of it all. The church at Ephesus had lost this. Their, their, their zeal for truth and their zeal for doctrinal purity had absolutely squeezed out love. They had gotten so wrapped up in fighting heresy and fighting false teachers that they lost the desire and the ability to speak the truth in love. And Christ has this against them. Listen, we're going to find out as we read the other, the other letters that doctrinal purity matters it's very important to Christ but it has to be balanced with love not every hill is a hill to die on Craig Keener writes this not all doctrines are at the heart of the gospel and not all errors are properly labeled heresy and not all disagreements are worth fighting about sometimes love says we choose another path Christ will not allow this in his church. He will not allow a church to go on long and be a loveless church, even if they get their doctrine right. You need to hear that this morning, and I need to hear that this morning, because we're a church that's very concerned about getting doctrine right. But we need to know that it's not enough to get our doctrine right. If we don't do it in love, then we're way out of bounds. If love doesn't saturate who we are, if it doesn't saturate how we interact with other people, if it doesn't flow out of the ministry, if it doesn't flow out of our hearts, if what people get from us and get from our church and get from us as individuals is not first and foremost the love of Christ, 
then we can argue doctrine with them all day long and we're banging our head against a block wall. A lovelessness is like a cancer that grows progressively and often unseen underneath the surface of the church until it progressively kills it. And as a church, we need to be mindful, like the Ephesian church needed to be mindful, to make sure that love is what marks us most. Christ says there's a cure for this in verse 5. Remember, therefore, where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Hey, that's a serious warning at the end, right? You've got to get this right, church, he says. You've got to get this right. There's opportunity. I'm a gracious Lord, and there's opportunity for you to, to get this right and to fix what's wrong in the body. But you need to understand, I'm coming in your direction. And if you don't remember, and if you don't repent, and if you don't go back to the way it was before when you loved people and you actually acted out of that love, there's something that's going to happen. I am going to remove your lampstand. If you imagine the church as a lampstand, it's a beautiful picture. The church is the lampstand, and Christ is the light on top of it, right, that shines out his brightness into the world. And the, the, the church puts Christ and all of his beauty on display for the world to see. But Christ says, listen, if you, you continue to navigate in a loveless, heartless, cold manner, I'm going to come, and I'm going to remove your lampstand. That's another way of saying I'm going to shut it down. I'm going to remove my blessing from the place, and you're going to cease to exist as a church. Your, may, your activity may continue for a while, but you'll cease to be my church if you can't get this right. And listen, we, need, we dare not gloss over that. That is a serious and direct warning from the Lord to the church. He will not tolerate a loveless church for long. He'll give opportunity to repent. He'll give opportunity to return. But if the church hardens itself and continues down the path, Christ will come and he will shut it down. He'll shut it down. This church hasn't always been like this in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, 40 years earlier almost, Paul writes this. He says, verse 15, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you. When Paul wrote the Ephesian letter a few decades earlier, Paul says, the one thing I, re I give thanks about for you is that you're a loving church. But in just a few decades, they've gone from being a notably loving congregation to being a loveless church. And that warning should blare in our eyes that it doesn't take long for a church to lose its love. This church was led by some of the giants of the faith, Paul, Timothy, John. And they lost their love. Jesus says, you need to remember where you've fallen from. You used to be up here, but now you're down here. You, you've fallen. You've fallen. You don't even realize it, but you've fallen, and you need to stop, and you need to pick up your head, and you need to remember what it was like when you first came to Christ, when you were enthused about the gospel, when you understood the love of God in Christ and what Christ has done for you, and it lit you on fire, and you couldn't help but get out into the world and love people in Jesus' name. That's what it's like when the gospel was fresh, and when you were a new believer, and you were on fire with the love of Christ, but something has happened, and you have fallen, and you're not that anymore, and you need to remember what it was like when you were like that. And you need to repent and get back to that again. You need to get back to that. The saddest thing I've seen in my over 20 years as a lead pastor is members who come to church week after week after week, decade after decade after decade, and somehow when you encounter them, you find they're still bitter, angry, cold, combative, loveless. Somehow they're able to sit through corporate worship unmoved by anything and walk away with only critiques, 
no real interest in the word of God, no real desire to serve anybody. And when we find people in that condition, there's one of two things that's the problem. They're either unsaved and they don't know Christ. They've never been captivated by the true love of God in Christ at the cross and the gospel. Or, like the Ephesian church, they've fallen somewhere along the way. And they need to remember. Can you remember what it was like when you first came to Christ? Can you remember the overwhelming love that you had for God and what he had done for you that you couldn't do for yourself? Do you remember that immense gratitude that filled your heart when you looked at the cross and you saw your own sin being paid for? When you scratched your head and you wondered why would God love somebody like me who had done nothing but rebel? Why would God love somebody like me who gets it wrong so many times? Do you remember what it was like to feel that love for God? If you've forgotten and you need to stop and remember. And you need to compare it to where you are right now in this area of love. And if there's a gap, you need to repent. To repent. I need to return to the love that you once had. This is a call to the church. At Ephesus, it's a call to the church at Grace on the Ashley. It's a call to every believer to recognize in our own lives lovelessness and to call it what it is. It is outright sin. We can take no comfort in right doctrine if our lives do not reflect the love of Christ. And it's a call for us to, to repent, to turn from a spirit of judgmentalism to a, judge, to a spirit of grace, to turn from a, an attitude of condemnation of other people to an attitude of compassion for other people, to turn from an attitude of a, of a cold distance from others to an attitude of warmth and closeness of relationship with other people. I remember when I was a kid, one of my favorite toys was a little toy that I had that was a glow-in-the-dark toy. Did you ever have those glow-in-the-dark toys when you were a kid? They have this, they're kind of white-looking on the outside, and I can remember as a kid holding them up to the light bulb in, in the lamp in our house. And if you held it up by the, light, the lamp light bulb for a while, you could then go into a dark room and you could turn off the lights and go in the closet and that little, that little sucker would just would glow and it would light up and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I couldn't understand how did that work that you could put it up next to a light bulb and you'd go in the dark and it would light up. I love that but you know what happened inevitably if you stay in the dark long enough the, the glow would start to dim out and you'd have to go back to the light bulb again and stick it up there and, and recharge it, right? I remember that toy well and I thought about it this week. That's kind of how love operates in our life. You and I need to get close to Jesus Christ. He is the light of life. And when we're close to him, the love of Christ flows into our lives and it lights us up with that love. And we take it out into a dark world and we shine it. But when we distance ourselves from Christ, the love that it comes out of the inside of us begins to dim just like that little toy that I used to have. And the first step that we need to do to recapture it is to run to Christ and get back near the light bulb again and recapture our love for him so that once again we're captivated by his love and his love fills our hearts and lights us up so that we're ready to go out and love other people. Has your love grown cold? Are you like that little toy that sort of, maybe the glow is still there but it's just barely? This morning the call is to repent of that and run to Christ. We don't want Christ to remove the lampstand from this church, Right? We don't want him to remove the blessing from our lives individually. And so this morning is called to you and to me is to look at ourselves hard in the mirror, corporately and individually, and ask the question, where do we stand in relation to Christ in the area of love? When people encounter this church, do they encounter the love of Christ? When people encounter me, do they encounter the love of Christ? Is all of our work and all of our ministry and all of our serving and all of our teaching, is it flowing out of a deep and abiding love for Christ and a love for other people? Even when we're contending for truth, do we do it in a way and in a spirit that communicates love and not hatred? Do we even do that in such a way that people understand that even when we disagree, we love you? And it's possible to do both. If not, then the call is to repent. 
I pray that this morning as we sort of wrap this up, that you would hear that call and take it seriously in your own life. And that I would as well. And that we would as a group care deeply about this matter of love because Christ cares deeply about it. Lord Jesus, we can't even begin to imagine a more extravagant love than your love for us. A love that would compel the one who was perfect and sinless to endure the shame and humiliation of a cross, to be taunted and beaten and mocked and killed, not to pay the price for your own sin, but to pay the price for mine, to pay the price for ours, not because you had to, not because you needed something that you lacked, not because you were lonely and needed friends, but simply because you loved us. Lord, I can't understand that kind of love, a love that's sacrificial, a love that's offered with nothing expected in return or demanded, really, a love that's offered as a free gift of grace, a love that loved us even when we were quite unlovable, a love that was offered to us, to me, even knowing that I would spurn it at times. I cannot imagine such love that you have for us, but I'm immensely grateful for it, Lord. And I pray for my own self and for my friends who've gathered this morning that we would be so captivated by that love that it would infuse everything that we say or do to other people and in their presence, both in the church and in the world that we'd be so captivated by your love for us that that would overflow into our lives and it would be communicated to everybody who knows us. That what they would think of when they think of us is that they would think of love first. Even when we have to have hard conversations and speak truth that people don't want to hear, that they would know, that they would know that those words, though hard, are driven by love and motivated by love. Lord, we desperately want your blessing on our lives and on our church. We can't think of anything worse than you coming and removing your lampstand. So draw us, Lord, to repentance in this area as we need it. Transform us into a place that's known for its love for one another and for the lost and dying world around us. We pray for your name and sake. Amen.